Welcome to Feeding the Flock and our expositions through the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. We are currently in chapter 2 at verse 44. Hi there, I'm Glendale Tony. I'm glad you joined me today. Let's begin reading in verse 44 of chapter 2 of the book of Daniel where it says this. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon, while Daniel was at the king's court. So we find here the conclusion, you might say, of Daniel's interpretation of the king's dream. Daniel had already, in the verses previous, talked about this dream and its content in order to validate the fact that he had authority to interpret the dream and its content. And that was sort of the test that the king had laid out. And none of the other uh, wise men of Babylon were able to do that particular uh, little trick, you might say, even though in Daniel's case it wasn't a trick. It was uh, the work of the Holy Spirit of God giving Daniel this insight into the king's dream, first of all, so that he could describe the dream to him with accurate detail. So then the king was ready for the interpretation. And that's uh, where we find ourselves in verse 44 at the last part of the interpretation of this dream. And that is the dream included not only the statue, but it included the the, uh, destruction of the statue by this stone cut out of a mountain uh, that was cut out without hands. That meant this was not a human agency that quarried this stone. And yet the stone itself struck down Uh, the entire statue, which in this case meant those uh, four main uh, Gentile empires that Daniel has just uh, finished interpreting for the king. And he started with the head of gold, 
which was the king Nebuchadnezzar. He says, you are that head of gold. And then he goes on to say that that the silver is a kingdom that comes after that part of uh, of, uh, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And that, of course, is the uh, breasts and the arms of silver, and that represented the Medo-Persian Empire, because we know that that's exactly what happened. And we know from Daniel's own career that he lived long enough to see the transition of power, the regime change from uh, uh, Babylonian Empire to the Medo-Persian Empire, even as it ruled from Babylon. And then after that comes another kingdom of bronze in that statue, and that is Greece. And uh, of course, then there was the legs and the feet of iron, and the feet also contained iron mixed with clay, but the iron continued. And that is a reference to what we now know to be the Roman Empire, because the Roman Empire followed the Grecian Empire, and the Grecian Empire followed the Medo-Persian Empire, and the Medo-Persian Empire followed Babylon. So, This is not a difficult thing to interpret, and yet uh, Daniel finds himself then at the end here with uh, interpreting this stone and the fact that this stone was cut out without hands. And this entire breadth of this uh, interpretation of this dream, these four main empires had to do with the with the occupation of the nation of Israel. It had to do with those major uh, Middle Eastern uh, empires that, that controlled the Middle East, you might say, even though uh, uh, Greece and Rome did not find their headquarters in the Middle East, yet uh, they were still dominant over the, uh, the nation of Israel. Israel. And in fact, Jesus calls this, he calls this in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, he calls it uh, that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Jesus gave a label to these four main empires. And in fact, Jesus' entire uh, earthly ministry were, uh, was carried out under the auspices of, uh, of the empire of Rome in many regards. The, the, uh, the beginning years of the church uh, were founded during the empire of Rome and its control over the nation of Israel. So the times of the Gentiles were still intact, you might say, uh, even during the time of Jesus himself and the early church. So these four empires included Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Finally, Paul himself calls this, uh, uh, this until the times, that is, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, according to Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Paul himself recognized this era of human history by a unique phrase, a unique title, a unique umbrella over this entire portion of human history. And that is the times of the Gentiles. So this fits, you see, until, until verse 44. And verse 44, then Daniel begins to interpret that, that, uh, 
that stone. He says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. So now we know the source of this stone made without hands. It was quarried without human uh, chisels or human axes or human instruments of any sort. It was done without any human hands. This was a God thing that is uh, going on here. And God of heaven will set up a kingdom. By the way, this title for God, God of heaven, is used four times in this chapter. Verse 18, verse 19, verse 37, and here in verse 44. This is a God kingdom, but it's a God kingdom on earth. This is not a heavenly kingdom of, uh, of heavenly sorts. This is a God kingdom on earth that he himself will implement on earth and will destroy and set aside the Gentile uh, times of rulership, or that is the authority of Gentile uh, empires to rule over the nation of Israel. Instead, God will set up his own kingdom using the nation of Israel. This is not the kingdom, you might say, of the church uh, or uh, uh, the church in terms of, of what Jesus planted as the uh, the bride of Christ. This is something completely different because this is uh, something revealed to Daniel in the Old Testament about the things that the Old Testament had already predicted in many regards because of the fact that this was a stone cut out without hands and then it becomes a a uh, a kingdom of its own on earth. And because God has already implemented, he's already predicted the fact that there would be a seed of a woman in chapter uh, 3 of Genesis and verse 15. It's important to take the entire historical framework of the revelation of God about this work of God on earth to bring about his kingdom on earth. And it began basically in its germination form back in Genesis 3.15. He's actually talking to the serpent when he says, uh, I will put put uh, enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This, in many regards, is the Redeemer being prophesied, being predicted, and the Redeemer would give final victory over the serpent's rule at that time. And uh, and yet the serpent himself would be given a certain temporary access to the Messiah, to the Redeemer. And that was given in a, in a very uh, simplistic sort of way in Genesis 3.15. But we, we would just sort of like dismiss that sort of phrase as being very obscure and very uh, awkward or at least uh, 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 unimportant and irrelevant maybe unless we follow the rest of the Old Testament and follow the fact that God truly has begun his work of sending a redeemer into the human family through a woman's womb and yet without the aid of a man and that this would be a special redeemer seed from the woman not from a man and that he would rule and would finally give an ultimate victory over the effects of Satan not only that 
but he he promised Daniel. That is, excuse me, he promised David in Second Samuel that. Uh, that uh, I will raise up your descendant after you in Second Samuel uh, chapter seven verses twelve, and again in verse sixteen it says, "I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever." So God has put this in motion, not only in a spiritual sense would the Redeemer come and redeem, but in a very uh, 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 practical sense, a, a national sense for the nation of Israel, for the ruling of the nation of Israel over and influencing all other nations, not being captivated by those nations. And that has been uh, prophesied. It also has been, now that we know, now that we have seen Jesus come to earth and give his first portion of his career on earth and his, and his ministry as Redeemer, uh, we anticipate that he will return to set up his kingdom and uh, set up that kingdom that God has ordained, that he has not yet started to fulfill the earthly kingdom of the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. Well, we'll get to more later, right after this uh, short musical interlude. Just stay with us and we'll be back right after this. continue on in Daniel uh, chapter 2 verse 44 where he continues to describe the God of heaven setting up a kingdom that is organized or birthed you might say in a supernatural sense and yet it is a very physical kingdom a very earthly kingdom that also has victory over the Gentile kingdoms that preceded it and in fact it says that uh, God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That's the negative aspect, you see. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. In other words, there will be no more kingdoms left after God sets up his kingdom established by this stone cut out of a mountain without hands. And so, uh, then uh, then uh, Daniel turns around and interprets and uses positive terms. He says, it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. That means Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome. They will, they will 
put an end to their dominance on earth, but it's, it will itself endure forever. So this kingdom of God on earth will endure forever. And so Daniel finishes his interpretation by saying, inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. So you see, Daniel has now said that God has a plan. And basically he's he's implying, in fact, he's doing more than implying, he said it outright, except I'm not quite sure that Nebuchadnezzar caught it all in this first encounter and this first interpretation in these words. He's just happy to know that somebody actually knew what he dreamt about and was able to tell him an interpretation. I don't think Nebuchadnezzar has put two and two together yet, because If he would have at this moment, he wouldn't see this as a friendly gesture on uh, uh, Daniel's part. This is not flattering to say that eventually the outcome will be, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom isn't forever. Your kingdom will be part of this whole Gentile enterprise that will be destroyed by God's kingdom on earth. And uh, and that that will be the one that will be uh, forever, not yours. And that's exactly what Daniel interpreted for the king to be, that this stone cut out without hands will ultimately be victorious over all these other Gentile kingdoms that have dominated Israel. And he says, the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. So Daniel stakes his career on this and and basically stakes the, the authority of his God upon this interpretation. Now, what's fascinating is to see that Jesus knew these prophecies, of course, and that that Jesus himself read from uh, a passage in Isaiah about the day of the Lord. And in fact, he read from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. He read up and to and including, he says, I will uh, proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. But what's interesting is in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus stands in the synagogue and reads this passage from Isaiah. Jesus sits down in the middle of the reading. In fact, he sits down in the middle of a sentence. He doesn't complete the quotation in his reading. And in fact, he sits down and gives this announcement in in Luke chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. He says he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus himself understood that sitting down and declaring the scriptures to be fulfilled up unto and including the phrase to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, but it does not include the next phrase. What is the next phrase? Well, 
If you go back to Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, the last phrase is, and the day of vengeance of our God. That means Jesus himself understood that his earthly ministry, his first uh, uh, phase of that earthly ministry, did not include the victorious, politically victorious, kingdom of God on earth. It merely included declaring the grace of God, the favorable year of the Lord. That's what that refers to. So that Jesus understood that his earthly career for his first time on earth only included that first phrase and did not include the kingdom that is prophesied by Daniel, that the stone cut out of the mountain without hands was going to implement. So what do we see? Personally, I see we are yet to anticipate the Messiah, the Redeemer, coming to earth to set up this earthly kingdom. But it's coming because Daniel says it is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. You can trust this to be true. Why? Because we trust the four other prophesied kingdoms to come about. And if those other four kingdoms came about the way Daniel said they would, then we can trust that this fifth kingdom, a kingdom that is not originating on earth, even though it is an earthly kingdom. It originated by the God of heaven, carving out and quarrying this stone, all of his own. And that's what Jesus is. He is the the stone that was rejected. You remember? And yet now he's become the chief cornerstone. And that's exactly what he will become when he returns to this earth and fulfills everything he has promised to do. And we can be confident in that. You see, Jacob promised to the tribe of Judah. He says, verse, Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, it says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between, between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of all peoples. So Jacob, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, spoke these words over the tribe of Judah, the very tribe that both Joseph, the father of, uh, of Jesus, or technically the stepfather, or the, the, uh, uh, the physical father, the adoptive father, uh, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, they were both descendants of the tribe of Judah. And And that's why Jesus qualifies as being that redeemer seed. Uh, In Genesis 49, verse 24, he calls upon God, the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. You see, the mighty one of Jacob. Who is the mighty one of Jacob? The God of Jacob, the God of heaven. He is the one who's going to form the stone of Israel, that that nation of Israel under the leadership of the Redeemer seed, the Redeemer that God had promised to be Uh, to be that ruler, to take on the throne of David over the nation of Israel. 
Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. By the way, that's the same passage that we quote quite often uh, that, uh, that comes later. In that same passage in Psalm 118, verse 24, we often quote this, uh, this uh, phrase out of that same passage. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Well, guess what? That phrase isn't an empty phrase. It's not just a proverbial phrase out of the book of Proverbs. It is a phrase out of a psalm. And the psalm began in uh, Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You see, that's the day that the Lord has made. When the Redeemer seed of Israel returns to this earth and establishes a kingdom that inherits David's throne on earth over the nation of Israel in Jerusalem, and that nation of Israel dominates the rest of the world of Gentile kingdoms, that that will be the day which the Lord has made, and that's what we anticipate according to the picture we have here in Daniel. Now, what's interesting is, right after Daniel finishes, uh, the king is just so happy at the fact that somebody told him his dream and gave this interpretation, excuse me, and and uh, that he actually falls down at his at, at Daniel's feet and gives him homage. Uh, and evidently, this isn't a directly worship, but he but he wants to give Daniel an offering that is a gift and and uh, blow some sacred smoke in the air on Daniel's behalf and and he. He even says that he acknowledges that Daniel's God is the God of gods and Lord of kings. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that that this pagan king has just automatically transferred all of his allegiance to the God of Daniel, but he has at least, at least he's made the step of including the God of Daniel into his own pantheon of gods in the Babylonian empire. So at least Daniel's God has, has uh, been accredited to to be worthy, to be a part of it. And of course, uh, I don't think Daniel, uh, that is, I don't think Nebuchadnezzar has put the, uh, put the pieces all together that this is going to eventually include his own demise and the demise of his own kingdom in future days to come. But at least he gives Daniel a promotion and that means he becomes the, uh, the, uh, uh, the director of of the entire province, the the uh, the uh, secretary of state, you might say, of the entire province of Daniel, and Daniel puts these three guys uh, as a part of his own administration. So. Daniel has built some rapport with this king to at least validate the words of God in his presence. The prophetic word of God is now validated and is official. And it's, it's placed there in the hands of Daniel 
as ruler over the province of Babylon and as prefect, he becomes president of Babylon University. That means he has the responsibility of training other spiritual and religious leaders for the next several years of his career as he stays in Babylon as a Jewish prophet being the head of everything that Nebuchadnezzar makes him head of because he's earned the respect both by his character and by his prophecies and by his courage to reveal the words of God to the king. Thank you, dear Father, for what you did through the life and the ministry of Daniel while he was here. Thank you for these simple pictures. So far, they're simple pictures of what you have in store for the nation of Israel and for the Gentile nations surrounding her that have placed her under bondage. And yet, you have promised a freedom, a freedom of your making when you create a kingdom out of your own Redeemer that you send to this earth. We pray that your kingdom will come to this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you enjoyed this presentation today. This is Glendal Tony. Join us again for the next episode of Feeding the Flock.